Romans chapter 8, we will be looking at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let us pray for God's help. Almighty Lord, to your word we turn for instruction. It is able to make us wise unto salvation. But Lord, apart from your Spirit, we cannot profit from your word. And so we do ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that he would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, and that we ourselves, Lord, would be ready to believe them. And by believing them, Lord, we would be saved. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I don't think that I have ever preached a part two before. I can't recall that I have, and I wouldn't likely make a habit of it. But previously in this section of Scripture, we discovered the Christian's duty to put to death the deeds of the body. And we talked about mortification of sin. And I want this evening to see if I can give you some additional practical helps to encourage you in that task of mortifying your sins. And so we will look at this, these verses again, but in four parts this time. The task of mortification. So we'll define mortification. Then we will consider some motives to help you mortify your sins. Thirdly, we will look at the means by which we can mortify sins. And then fourthly, we will close with some methods of mortifying sin. So first of all, mortification. This is a task assigned to every Christian. It's described in this text as putting to death the deeds of the body. And what it means here is an active, ongoing killing of remaining sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right? It's active, it's ongoing, it is killing of sin, and it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. First thing we need to remember is that mortification is active, not passive. Verse 13 says, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is not one of those just let go and let God activities. This is one in which you, the saint, are actively engaged. You have to get your hands dirty in killing sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, the Apostle Paul likens the Christian life to a race. And he urges you to run that race in such a way that you may obtain the prize. Now, no one would think of running an actual race without breaking a sweat. Neither should we think of the Christian life as one that we can engage in without breaking a spiritual sweat. We should not think that mortifying the flesh will be accomplished without some effort on our part. The Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 13 said, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. This striving, which the Lord Jesus talks about, includes our efforts in putting to death sin. Mortification, in addition to being active, is also ongoing. Remember, we noticed this was a present tense verb. 
What that means is it's not a one-time thing. This is continuous or ongoing. It indicates a process, and the flesh is mortified by degrees, meaning it's not all at once. It comes in fits and starts, or somewhat similar to what Pastor Heupel talked about this morning. Sometimes we have success, and then there's failures, and that is the process of mortification. It is ongoing. It continues throughout the life of the Christian. We are presently engaged in a contest against sin. Now, every contest must have some kind of time limit. The time limit for this particular contest is all of our days under the sun. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian left the city of destruction, he did not proceed immediately to the celestial city, did he? Rather, he set about on a journey. And that journey took him through many difficulties. And that is very much what the Christian is like. Christian life is like. And this is why scripture exhorts us to endurance. For example, in Hebrews 12, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles and ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are referred to the church militant. Here on earth, we are the church militant because we are in the fight. The church in heaven is called the church triumphant because they have conquered and they are no longer in the battle. Someday we will enter the church triumphant and we will truly rest. Until then, we mortify sin. Now, when we speak of mortifying sin or mortifying the deeds of the flesh... Remember, we do not mean eradicating all presence or all vestiges of sin in this life. We mortify sin by resisting it, by restraining it, by subduing it, by weakening it, by reducing its power and strength over us. You see, we put the axe to the root of the tree of the sin that remains in us. And we begin swinging at it, and we hack away at it until we hear the Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter the joy of your Lord. And so our task at this time is actively ongoing killing of sin. We kill sin by reducing its power over us. And though you are active in the mortification of your sin... You must not forget that the power by which you put to death even the smallest sin is God the Holy Spirit. Even as it says here in verse 13, by the Holy Spirit. We will discuss the Holy Spirit more in a few moments, but for now, let's move on to consider some motives for mortification. By the word motives, I mean those things that incite or encourage you to do the thing which God requires of you. All of these motives that we have in the passage could be summarized under two headings. The first one is God's glory, and the second is your good. Now, we speak of God's glory ordinarily in two ways. We speak of God's intrinsic glory, and that is simply God's Worth and his majesty as he is in himself. And that glory is infinite and immutable. It cannot change. When it comes to God's intrinsic glory, his inherent worth, 
You can't do anything to add to it or take away from it. God is glorious. But there's another sense in which we speak of God's glory, and that's his ascribed glory. This is the glory which God's creatures can recognize and respond to and offer praises for and so on. And that's the kind of glory that's being, that I'm using to describe this passage. The ascribed glory is recognizing that we are indeed debtors to God. The passage says in verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh. And Paul does not fill it in. He allows us to fill it in. To whom are we debtors? What we learned last time, we are debtors to God, to the Holy Spirit. We are debtors to the one who has delivered us from sin. So because God is the one who redeemed us, he is the one to whom we have obligation. And so when you recognize God's ownership of you and respond, you are ascribing glory to him. So you can glorify God in this sense by honoring him as your God. Here are some common ways that we as Christians dishonor God. You see, we sometimes are not walking consistently with the obligation or debt that we have towards him. And so here are some common ways. Number one is disobedience. Disobeying God dishonors him. And it is not ascribing to him the glory that we as Christians ought to be ascribing to him. Remember this, God is your father You are his child. A disobedient child brings dishonor to his father. When God's children do not obey him, they are behaving dishonorably towards him. Another way that we sometimes dishonor God is by presumption. Presumption. And presumption is like this. We reason in our heads, today I will sin and tomorrow God will forgive me. Remember that the penalty for your sins was laid upon Jesus Christ. And he suffered and died that you might be forgiven. Therefore, you cannot make sin such a light thing that you will say to yourself, you will sin and God will forgive you. You see, to presume upon that grace is to overlook what it costs to purchase that grace for you. And it is the worst kind of ingratitude to think of your Savior having suffered for you so that you could make it a license for sin. Do you see that Jesus Christ suffered for your sins to deliver you from them, not in order that you could continue to serve them? A third way that we oftentimes dishonor God is by resistance. And by this I mean That the Holy Spirit himself, remember, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And what is he doing? He is applying to you the benefits of your salvation. He is working in you the graces that Jesus Christ obtained for you. He is leading you in paths of righteousness. But we can harden our hearts, we can stiffen our necks, and we can resist the work that he is doing. And that is why the Apostle Paul warns, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You see, when we become attached to a sin, when we will not let it go, when, when God is teaching us and we will not humble ourselves, we are resisting the Holy Spirit. And so those are three ways that we can 
not honor God as we ought, being under obligation to him. And there's much more we could say about God's glory as a motive for mortifying sins. But for now, know that you honor God when you kill the deeds of the body, and you dishonor him when you walk according to the flesh. We move now to a second part, or second kind of motive, and that's your own good. You remember that there is a warning and a promise in this passage, right? The warning is, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And the promise is that if you mortify the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live. So there is a choice between death and life, everlasting sorrow and everlasting happiness. I want you to see that God desires your good. And he is telling you things that are for your good. It is not for God's own benefit that he has saved you. Do you understand? Like God is not the party coming away blessed from this transaction. right? And God's laws for you, God's commands to you, God's work in you is all for your benefit. You see, the Christian's struggle with sin is actually a struggle of allegiance between two masters. One master who wishes your harm and another master who wishes your good. God being a good God and a good master only desires good for you and only tells you to do things that are good for you. Whenever we act contrary to God's expressed will, we do harm ourselves. Mercifully, not every time... We, we don't receive the entire consequences right away, but we harm ourselves when we act contrary to God's instructions. In the end, in this struggle between two masters, you know we will either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. And I want you to remember that you have very good reasons to love God. And you have very good reasons to hate your sin. Your sin is like iron chains wrapped around you, pulling you down into the abyss. And Jesus Christ says to you, you can be rid of those chains. I can take those off of you. But you have to desire to be rid of them. Sadly, too often we profess to be free from the chains in a sense and that we don't want to be drugged down to the abyss but we don't really have a hatred for those sins in our laws um, we distinguish different kinds of killing right Um, you can kill a man without an intention and that's just homicide and you can kill a man by neglect and there's various kinds of killing and murder is killing that's premeditated and it's performed with what they call malice aforethought. Malice is hatred. So when you kill someone with a hateful intention ahead of time, that's murder. And what I am saying to you is you should have that mindset towards the deeds of your flesh. You should have malice in your heart about the sin that is seeking to do you harm. So that's the one sense in which it's all right to murder. You can murder your sins with God's approval. 
So those are the motives, and essentially the motives, as I said, come down to wanting to glorify God, to whom we have such great obligation, and wanting to preserve our own lives, and God is telling us how we may do that. Those two motives combine to form a love for God and a hatred for sin. We use that hatred as a fuel in our fight against sin. We hate the sins, therefore we desire to be rid of them. Let's look for a few moments at the means by which we can put to death these deeds of the flesh. We mentioned earlier that we do it by the Holy Spirit. This means that while you must strive, the Holy Spirit is the efficient agent. He is the cause. He is the one performing the deeds and having the power to accomplish it. We read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Understand that shall not is not a command. That's a result. God is saying, if you do this, then this will happen. If you walk in the Spirit, then you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Do you see there's an antagonism, an opposition between God the Spirit and the flesh and its lusts. And when we walk according to the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. To walk in the Spirit means to live by His rule and His power. Even as to walk by the flesh means to live dominated by it. Remember that the Holy Spirit has been sent from the Father and the Son to apply to you those graces that Jesus Christ obtained on the cross. It is his work. He's been appointed to work that grace in you, to lead you, to sanctify you, to increase your faith, to strengthen you, to preserve you, to seal you and keep you until the end. But you must become acquainted with the Spirit. And you must yield yourself to his governance of you. I want to say then, how do we walk in the Spirit? How do we become acquainted with the Spirit and learn to yield ourselves to him? The most practical means of doing this is not to sit on an island somewhere and meditate. Right? This is not something that happens accidentally. It's not something that's purely mystical, but it's actually something rather boring and ordinary. It is not haphazard or accidental. It is a diligent seeking and submission to the Holy Spirit. And where do we seek the Spirit? Well, we seek the Spirit principally in the means of grace. If you have your Bibles, um, open them to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 41 through 43 for just a moment. Acts chapter 2, 41 through 43. And I'll read it. But this is, remember, on the day of Pentecost, when the Lord poured out the Spirit on the New Testament church. All right? So on this day, when the Holy Spirit is poured on the, on the church, verse 41 says, Those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. 
Observe here in this passage the means of grace and the results of using the means of grace. The means of grace are listed in this passage. Now, there are many, many means of grace. A means of grace is simply something God uses to communicate his grace to you. But he has what we call ordinary means of grace, right? The word of God, the sacraments, and prayer are the principal means of grace. So we see them in this passage. The word, those who received his word, and then it's also called the apostles' teaching. We see prayer. They continued steadfastly in prayers. We see the sacraments. The whole thing begins when they were baptized. And then a little bit later, they continued in the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread here is not just talking about lunch. It's talking about the church gathering together and having the Lord's Supper. And then notice, and fellowship. Now this fellowship, I've often said, is is. We could call it a means of grace, or it's the context in which the means of grace are dispensed. It's talking about the gathering of the saints together. And I want to just make a a slight digression about this fellowship. And I want to say very practically for you that fellowship with other Christians will become for you a great antidote against sins. We'll talk a little bit later about bad influences and bad company. Well, fellowshipping with Christians, I mean, we're not perfect, I get that, but they can be good influences and good company. And iron sharpens iron, and so saints fellowshipping together is a tremendous means of fighting sin. And there is one particular thing in the fellowship of the saints that is very helpful in mortifying the deeds of the flesh. The scripture says, confess your sins one to another. Here's why this works. Because sin likes to hide in the dark. Sin likes to remain hidden. And we may battle a sin by ourselves for a long time. But when we take that sin and we drag it out into the light and let someone else see it, someone who is mature in the faith, someone who will be sympathetic and merciful to us, and we tell them about this sin, and we don't say, I'm struggling with such and such. No, no. We name the sin. We tell them where we erred and that we need help and ask them to pray for us. Then that sin is in the light and it shrivels and dies much better than when it is hidden. Now, let me just make a caution here. When it comes to confessing sins, you don't need to confess every private sin to every member in the church. Sometimes there are sins you ought not confess to people because it will actually do them harm. Okay, But you should, Christian, in the fellowship of the saints, find a trusted person, a person to whom you can confess your sins, and you know that they will rebuke you, exhort you, comfort you, pray for you, check up on you, etc., etc. All right, let me move back then to our text here. We see the means of grace are the word and prayer and the sacraments and even the fellowship of the saints. Now look at the results of these saints coming together to share in the means of grace. At the end of verse 43, fear came upon every soul. This is that fear of God that Pastor Hypel was talking about. This is the fear of God in that sense, in the positive sense, is really just love for God. Right, the, the fear of God came because the working of the Spirit and the people wanted to do what was pleasing to God and they wanted to do what God approved of. 
So fear came upon every soul because they were attending the means of grace. And then, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So what we're seeing is the Spirit working love for God and supernatural power in the saints who made use of these means of grace. You see, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And if you diligently seek the Holy Spirit in the means of grace, He will work in you. And you will, as a consequence of that, walk in Him. All right, that's so much for the means. Let's look for a moment at some methods. And by methods, I am saying here are some ways, some biblical methods you can use to mortify sins. This first one is extremely complicated. Abstain from sin. The Apostle Peter writes, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. To abstain is is to refuse it, to not participate in it, to have nothing to do it, to just say no. There is an episode of The Twilight Zone, which is called The Helgramite Method. And it tells the story of a man who was a drunkard. Do you see what I... In the description of the episode, he's an alcoholic. But he's a drunkard, because that's the biblical category of that sin, right? Right? And that's one way that we mortify sin is by calling it what it is. Anyways, the man, he's a drunkard, and it's destroying his life. And he's tried everything to quit drinking, and nothing has worked. Out of desperation, he goes to a doctor who tells him he has a pill that will certainly cure him of his drunkenness. So the man takes the pill. What he does not understand is in the pill is a parasite. And this parasite feeds on alcohol. Now, if he will but starve the parasite, the parasite will, re- will retaliate and cause him great pain and, and agony for a little while. And then without alcohol, the Helgramite will go dormant and hibernate. And then any time the man were to drink alcohol subsequently, he would awaken this parasite in his belly, and then the parasite would grow, and each time he gives it just a drop of alcohol, it gets stronger until it finally kills him. That is a perfect picture of sin living inside of us, isn't it? And sometimes we have to just tell it no, and we just have to last a little while until Christ relieves us. Just abstain from it. Just tell it no. And then know this, the more that you tell it no, the weaker it gets. But the more that you tell it yes, the stronger it gets. This is why James says, resist the devil, and what? He must flee from you. We have to resist, and that's what I mean by abstaining from sins. The Lord Jesus, when he was tempted demonstrated this abstaining from sin. He was tempted of Satan in the wilderness, and he abstained, and he illustrates in his life what James tells us. Resist the devil, and he must flee. But there's something that interesting that happens at the end of Christ's temptation. The devil leaves him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. I want you to know that God is not ignoring you 
when you're being tempted to sin. When you're in the fierce struggle, when you're in the battle, God is on your side. He is with you, and he is rooting for you, and he is not going to abandon you, right? He's not, he's not away. He is there. And even as the Lord Jesus needed ministering to in his human nature, God knows that you do too. So the directive is to abstain from sin, understanding that at times that can be very, very difficult. Now then, a second method is to make no provision for the flesh. This comes right from Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Make no provision for the flesh. In the book of Kings, King Asa, if you remember, uh, 1 Kings 15, King Asa banished all the sodomites from the land, and he tore down all the idols. There were many, 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 many of the kings who made reforms in Judah, but very few of them actually went this far. Very few of them would tear down the high places or destroy the idols or banish all of the sodomites. Why did King Asa do this? He could have, do you know, in the law, he could have just punished the sodomites with death, and he could have just punished idolaters with death. But he saw that these things were persistent temptations for God's people to sin. And so he made no provision for them. He utterly removed them from the land. You see, as long as those things remained there, they would be a source of temptation. I'm asking you this evening to survey your soul. What are the constant sources of temptation? What are those things that you are making provision for? And you think of making provision, right? You're, you're leaving it there. You're leaving a little corner for it to reside in. You know the infamous story of Augustine. And he prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. See, what was he doing in that prayer? He was making provision for that lust, wasn't he? He was leaving a portion of it untouched. He wanted chastity, but he wanted to make provision. He wanted to keep some of it. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to keep back a part. Right? We oftentimes do that with sin, don't we? We want to be rid of the sin, but keep back the part. And I don't know, practically speaking, maybe there's an app on your phone that needs to go away. Or maybe there is a gap in your schedule that needs to be tightened up. Or maybe there's a number in your phone that needs to be deleted. I'm not sure, but there may be things in your life in which you have consciously, you wouldn't say it out loud, we would never say that out loud, but you've consciously made a little provision for sin just in case. Let me tell you, God wants you to put that sin to death, therefore don't make any provision for it. All right? Now here is a third thing. Replace sin with righteousness. Replace sin with righteousness. It's not enough for us to just remove sins. We must replace them with some good thing. We don't want to leave an empty space where that sin was. We want to cover over the hole with something. If we just only focus on abstaining from sins and removing sins, right, and not making provision from sins, we can find ourselves in a problem. Sins will come back, or some other sin, right, and they'll find the place, as Jesus said, swept clean and put in order. 
and he'll come back with seven friends, even worse. And then our latter end will be worse than the first. Let's go back to that passage in Romans 13 for just a moment that talked about making no provision for the flesh. And here's the full verse. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Do you see that it is actually putting on the Lord Jesus Christ that entirely makes no provision? As you put off the old man, the old man is that that sin nature, that corrupted part of your humanity, the the body of sin, the, the flesh. As you put off the old man, you have to put on the new man who is Jesus Christ. And to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to claim him, to possess him, to clothe yourself in his righteousness and to be conformed to his image and likeness. That's what it is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, soldiers, even in our, in our time, wear uniforms. And one function of a soldier's uniform is it identifies to whom he has an allegiance. So when you're wearing a uniform, say you're wearing a uniform for the United States Army, it shows you belong to and fight for the United States. There's also another function of that uniform. It shows that just as that soldier belongs or is is obligated to that army, so also that army is obligated to that soldier. Right? An enemy has to know that if he kills a man in a United States uniform, he didn't just kill a man. He killed a man who has a country. It's even better in the kingdom of heaven. You see, when we put on Christ, we are putting on a uniform, right? When we profess Christ, we are claiming allegiance to him. But it's not a one-way allegiance. It's an allegiance from Christ to you as well. Therefore, when you put him on, you have the Son of God and all of the armies of heaven on your side. This is tremendously valuable in your fight against sin, to know that your protector, your defender, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So... Put on Jesus Christ. Don't just, deal, don't just try to stop doing sins. Also, replace that sin with lovely thoughts of Jesus Christ, with praise to Jesus Christ, with trust in Jesus Christ, all of these things. While we are talking about not just replacing sin, or not just restraining from sin, but replacing it, here are two dangers, two typical mistakes we make in fighting sin. First... We might begin to concentrate only on sin, okay? We, we, we begin to only think about our sins and not our Savior. And if you see only your sins and never your Savior, you will lose the joy of your salvation. You will become spiritually depressed. A second mistake that's related to this is you may treat mortification of sin as mere behavior modification. Now, they're very closely related, right? Because the sins we're mortifying oftentimes are our behaviors. But it is not merely behavior 
modification. This has to be spirit-wrought repentance, right? This has to be something done in our spirit by God the Holy Spirit. We don't want to simply clean the outside of the cup or whitewash the tomb. And there is such a thing as an external temporary righteousness, right? You know, Pharaoh changed his behavior several times before he let God's people go. That was not the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in the way that he works in the believers. Do you understand that? There's a difference in Pharaoh's repentance and the repentance of the saint. So the answer, by the way, to both of those dangers, whether it's concentrating too much on your sins, you know, and another way to say that is, don't only think about what you can't do and what you can't have. There are things you can't do and there are things you can't have. But don't forget about what you can do and what you do have. Right? And the other one that I mentioned was treating like mere behavior modification. The answer to both of those is what we've already discussed. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Making him be our righteousness. All right, number four, have no fellowship with sin. Have no fellowship with sin. To have fellowship, just like we talked about the fellowship of the saints, right? To be closely entwined, related, connected together. And we shouldn't have that kind of relationship with, Paul says, the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11. This means don't fraternize with the enemy. He wants to do you harm and you are commanded to kill him. Don't get together and hang out with him. All right? Remember, bad influences corrupt good character. And the righteous man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. We have to ask ourselves what people or things are influencing us. And the things that are influencing us, ask whether they are leading you towards godliness or are they leading you towards death. If they're leading you towards death, then you have to cut off your fellowship with them. This includes things like acquaintances or friends, hobbies and entertainment, social media. You might ask ourselves whether the things we are watching on television or movies, whether they are aiding us in our battle against sin or are they hindering us? Are we becoming too comfortable with those things? Of course, this can also be related to books you may be reading or podcasts you listen to, whatever it is. If you want to mortify the deeds of the body, you cannot have fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. And parents, I want to remind you that it is the same for your children. If you, as adults in Christ, are threatened by fellowship with sin, how much more your children? You need to be monitoring the influences that are on their lives. You need to be praying against those things. You need to be actively taking steps. If they have a friend and you think that that friend is leading them into sin, you may need to cut that friendship off. If they have stuff on their phones or their devices that are leading them into sin, help them by not letting them have that fellowship. 
Whatever it is, both for yourself and for your loved ones, you cannot have fellowship with sin. Number five, discipline yourself. Okay, this is a method for mortifying sin. Discipline ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Here is a mistake that some in the history of the church have made. They practice something called asceticism. And they thought that by depriving their body of ordinary things, they were attaining righteousness. That's not the case. That's not how it works. We can't bribe God by denying ourselves things, right? That's not what we can do. But we can develop discipline. And we can deny ourselves in order to make us a more formidable instrument in the fight against sin. Think of any kind of competition or contest or anything like that. People will practice and train and devote themselves to a task. And they will have to say no to some things in order to obtain that goal. So too with the Christian life. We want to develop discipline that, that we ourselves, we don't have to be uh, disciplined from the outside, right? As children, when, when our children are little, we have to discipline them. We have to spank them and, and correct them and so forth, right? But as they get older, they can discipline themselves. And we Christians need to grow in that. And, and sometimes it's as simple as telling ourselves no. And it's very hard to tell ourselves no. But that's what Paul is talking about here. He brings himself, his own body, into subjection. And this, we won't have time to talk about it this evening, but this is an area for prayer and fasting. Right? Jesus talked about there were some demons that only came out by prayer and fasting. Well, I think that there are some sins that are only mortified by prayer and fasting. By a diligent and sincere period of seeking the Lord and his deliverance, even denying yourself some of the ordinary comforts of this life. But above all, this discipline is learning to say no to yourself. And you must understand that in terms of your body and your soul and all of these things, there's a very strong connection, right? And so if we are particularly undisciplined in one area, it makes us vulnerable in the whole, right? Think of yourself as a house. And if you were to try to, you know, keep invaders out of your house and you lock the front door, but you leave the back door open, you can do this with your body, and with your habits, and with your disciplines, right? You might be locking all the doors, but then leaving one open. All right, so discipline yourselves. Number six, focus on your own sins. Focus on your own sins. James 1.14 says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. First, notice that each of us has enough lusts in our own hearts to keep us from becoming too curious 
about everyone else's. Not that we shouldn't oppose those things and even speak against them when it's appropriate, but our focus overwhelmingly should be on our own sins. Those are the sins that are going to kill us. It's not going to be someone else's sin that is going to endanger my soul. But notice also in James 1.14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts. Sin and temptation are common to man. Right? We all are subject to the same basic sins. But each of us has specific sins that are more dear to us and we are more likely to commit. You see, it's his own lust. And given his own natural temperament and his own particular weaknesses and his own experiences and all of these kinds of things, each person has those sins to which he is most predisposed. And it is those sins that we must especially focus on. And if you're wondering, how do I find these? Look for habitual sins, sins that return year after year or time after time. Look for long-term sins or sins for which you've begun to make excuses. We call them pet sins, sins which you've nurtured and cared for. Those are the ones that are probably due to your unique makeup and your own temperament and all these other factors. They're especially dangerous for you. While we're on this one, and we only have just one more left, while we're on this one, because, okay, there are certain sins to which each of us is tempted to. And there are also certain sins to which we ourselves are never tempted. All right, there are some sins that even when I was not a Christian were not a temptation to me. I had no interest in them. Don't pat yourself on the back when you don't fall into sins to which you are actually not tempted. Okay? Focus on your sins and don't become prideful that you don't have that particular sin. You may, by God's grace, you just may not be predisposed to that and it's, it's not going to appeal to you or God has just been very gracious to you and you're not tempted to that particular sin. Be glad for it, yes, but do not become prideful and do not focus on the sins you don't have. Focus on the ones that you do. All right, the last one. Kill sin when it's small. Kill, and I've said something similar to this before, but the idea is from James chapter 1, verse 15. When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do you see, there's, there's some steps in between before death. There's, there's way back at the time of conception, and then a bringing forth, and then a growing into sin, and then finally death. And it's so much easier to put to death these sins at the first motions of them, right? Don't let an outburst of anger get to the point where you punch someone or, or hit a wall. No, deal with the anger when it's right here, right? Deal with it when it's smaller and there are fewer consequences. I read a, a, a story of Jack Daniels. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's very interesting. Um, and it's, you know, legendary. But the legend is this. He one time could not get into his safe, and so he lost his temper and kicked his safe. In kicking his safe, he broke his toe. Because he broke his toe, he developed an infection in his toe. 
And because he didn't get it treated, he needed to get his toe amputated. But because it had gone on too long, after he got his toe amputated, the infection moved into his foot. And he had to have his foot amputated. But because the infection was already too far gone, removing his foot could not save the leg. And he had to have the leg amputated. And then eventually, Jack Daniels died of blood poisoning, all because he kicked his safe. And I can't help but think that that's a picture of what it means to fight sins when they are small. Because small things have a way of growing big and getting out of control in a very short time. Small things become big things, and they are much easier for us to fight when they are small things. So we've seen then several methods of hopefully fighting against sin, putting to death those sins. And there is one more thing I want to say in conclusion, that is this. In spite of all the methods, in spite of all of these exhortations to strive, the one thing that you must not lose sight of is this. You must trust in Christ for deliverance from your sin. And indeed, you must expect that he will deliver you from your sin and that he will, in due time, completely relieve you of that burden. And this goes back to verse 11 of this chapter that we are in. Remember, it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Remember that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead to deliver you from your sins. And the same spirit by which he was raised has now been given to you. Therefore, you can trust that he will accomplish what he set out to do. So trust him to deliver you and expect him to relieve your burden. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray for your help in our battle against sin. You have sworn by your own name that you will win the battle. You will conquer over our sins. And we ask you, O God, to hasten that day. Give us strength and encouragement in doing this. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.